Brian, thanks again for taking time to be here. It looks like we're right uh, around two to the top of the hour. If folks haven't been on or just joining us, please put into the comments any kind of questions you'd like to add or comments. I'm sure we'll try to address those as we're able. We're glad to have Brian Blunt. When I think of somebody who has scripture right at the center of, of what matters to them and where you spent your life, I can think of no one better to help us think through this than you, Dr. Blunt. Um, what a gift, good gift you've been. For those who don't know Brian, he's the been the president of Union Presbyterian Seminary and professor of New Testament since 2007 with campuses in both Richmond, Virginia and Charlotte, North Carolina. He's a was a professor before that for a decade and a half at Princeton Seminary, where he also has his MDiv uh, from. His PhD is from Emory in cultural hermeneutics, and that's really important today um, in his first book, even in that area. Um, I think that needs some attention, maybe some rereads uh, during this time. Um, he uh, majored in psychology and religion at the College of Mary and was the first African-American person inducted into the Kappa, uh, Phi Beta Kappa Society there. And there's some wonderful stories about that. Um, some of you, uh, and usually maybe not in the introduction, he's also, I think I take it, a graduate of the Martha James Memorial Kindergarten. Uh, kindergarten. <laughs> That's right. I was doing a day during segregation when uh, kindergartens were not in public schools, but uh, many African-American communities had them in churches. Right, right. And I believe your mother was a teacher. Is that That's right? right. That's right. Uh, blunt and she didn't teach me conflict of interest. You conflict of interest. <laughs> um, I'm sure that was that was formative. There probably some scripture in there somewhere. Um, <laughs> And he is the middle of two boys, uh, both uh, his older and younger brother, very accomplished, um, one in nuclear engineering and, and another in film and media. Um, just a wonderful family. Uh, not only president of Union Seminary, Presbyterian Seminary, but um, former president of the Society of Biblical Literature, which is a tremendous uh, accomplishment. And his presidential address, I say, just look it up in the Journal of Biblical Literature, just amazing. I was privileged to be there. Currently, the president of the Association of Theological Schools, those are the 270 graduate schools of theology um, that are accredited in the U.S. and Canada. Former pastor, Carver Memorial Church uh, there in the Hampton Roads of Virginia. He's, a, he's also a parent and a spouse, Sharon, his wife and his children, Joshua and Kaylin both accomplished themselves, a scholar, six monographs, numerous articles, books, contributions, and collaborations. He did the Beecher Lectures at Yale, which are just um, landmark sort of uh, lectures, and that was the basis of your last book, the award-winning book uh, on Revelation, I believe. Um, I think you were the last preacher I heard live, Brian. Is that in, right? In, um, oh, yes, at Next Church. Yes. At Next Church, which is now you can go and look at that friends on video. I, I encourage you to do so. So um, you're, you're my last live preacher. I remember. So um, thank you. Thank you again for making time. I don't know what you want to say about um, your context and call what is making you come alive. What is, what is, uh, what is your soul work these days? Uh, how would you describe what's happening? And it's a crazy time. Well, so, it is. <laughs> it is. It's a um, nurture and care of uh, the community 
in which I serve. I think is I think I would describe it that way. Um, figuring out how to uh, do seminary um, in this time. Um, I don't teach um, full time. Um, every once in a while, I will teach my own course. But um, last week, I was the uh, guest lecturer and teacher in the Intro New Testament class. Um, they were having their last um, week of class, and it was the Book of Revelation. So I was invited to come in and lecture and then lead the small group sessions and the exegetical uh, studies and that. Um, so that was exciting um, to talk about Revelation in the midst of all of this and uh, why um, we uh, understand God to be sovereign, even in the midst of circumstances that appear to um, demonstrate that the world is out of control or that evil forces, in this case, Rome, a a.k.a. Babylon, um, is in control or something um, that we can't control in nature, like um, a pandemic or, it, of course, there were plagues and whatnot in the book of Revelation. But in those cases, can we continue to believe that God is sovereign and God is in control and that we want to witness to that control? How do we do that? So uh, it, teaching that book in, in, in this time um, to students was uh, revelatory, if I right. might you know, take John's title of his book. Um, I also, you know, just talked with um, students um, about um, issues like, you know, we're having virtual graduation and how difficult that is, the things that we all miss, um, the collegiality and um, the being together on campus and marking signal moments in the lives of people who have spent two, three, mm -hmm. four, and, and for PhD students longer than that, um, years on campus. So um, trying to um, both think scripturally and think pastorally um, about the community I'm in. That would be my work these days, I think. Right. Well, you know, I, I think about people and before I got to know you um, and, and even since I've experienced it the same way as you are a pastor and a friend and a professor <laughs> asking the challenging questions and, and, and leading um, in a very caring sort of way. So I feel like you were you are the right person right now to be doing what you're doing. It's a real, a real gift and not just at union, but in the ATS and, um, you know, in, in Richmond and for, in Charlotte and, and, and your scholarship. Uh, and I do want to hopefully get around to hearing what some of your scholarship is these days, but you've gone right to our question here in this context. And I, I started looking uh, um, at, some pieces of this award-winning book from 2014, Invasion of the Dead, Preaching uh, Resurrection, which looks at um, Revelation, I think, is one of the primary contexts. Um, you talk in that book, and these are some of the questions that came from others leading up to this, about apocalyptic preaching, and it feels like an apocalyptic moment, maybe not the same kind of apocalypse, right? Uh, but how do we preach resurrection, revolution, sovereignty. I mean, you talk about sovereignty of God. I'm glad you said that. I mean, that's pretty central in the Reformed tradition, right? How do we preach that? And it's not, I was listening to your sermon, it's not all about divine election. Um, it's about being a real a witness. That's another one of your books, Can I Be a Witness? about what was the, uh, the phrase you use is, um, oh gosh, a human... Uh, Oh, you're gonna you're a, a human subscription, not divine election, yeah, right? You know, right? So how can we be sent in this sort of time as a witness uh, in this apocalypse, if you will, apocalypse? Well, um, one of the things I try to do in that book, Invasion of the Dead, is uh, 
reclaim or suggest that the church should reclaim apocalyptic uh, from popular culture. I like popular culture. I use a lot of popular culture examples in that book, um, but I argue that um, apocalyptic, um, it, well, it doesn't start with Christianity. There were Jewish apocalyptic materials. There were other um, cultural apocalyptic materials um, in and before the first century when the New Testament was written. So the New Testament's written in the midst of that, that, that um, communal ethos, so to speak. Um, but um, it certainly has been a core piece of who we are as Christians, the New Testament materials, thinking about um, how God reveals God's future intent in the present moment. And how does God do that? Um, God invades in the present moment. That's our get the title, Invasion of the Dead. Um, but it's not just the invasion of the dead at the end of time, which is what the book of Revelation and Jesus in Mark 13 talks about, you know, when the elect shall be gathered from all the corners of creation and whatnot, and then God will bring this resurrection of the dead that will be the second wave that comes after Jesus as the first fruits. But Jesus himself is the invasion of God into human history to insert God's future intent in the midst of the present moment in the way that Jesus lives his life. So then how do we replicate that in the way we live our lives today? How do we become like Jesus um, um, indications of God's invasion into the present moment. And I make the argument that um, the place in that book, I make the argument that the place, the signal place, the signature place where God makes that invasion is not in the cross, even though that's a key moment, but it's in the resurrection, resurrection. because the resurrection redeems the cross. It, um, it, 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 claims life over death, and it claims that that life is a promise for all of us. So the hopefulness of New Testament apocalyptic can counter the pessimism um, and the despair of popular culture apocalyptic. You know, I was, you know, I, I in reading and preparing for that book, read um, 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 apocalyptic novels, particularly zombie novels. I was reading apocalyptic uh, materials, looking at apocalyptic <laughs> movies. The constant thread with all of those is fear, and hopelessness. Even in heroic moments, the heroic moments are the isolated pieces, the islands in the midst of an ocean of despair. But in the New Testament, in apocalyptic, there is despair, there is hopelessness, certainly in the book of Revelation, the plagues, etc. But those are the islands. The real ocean is the hopefulness that is coming and that's pervading the whole work in the book of Revelation. So, you know, this hopefulness is built from God's invasion in Jesus. And then I think we become conduits of that invasion in the way in which we replicate Jesus's ministry in our own lives. And in so doing, we represent or, 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 or bring into the present God's future intent. And God's future intent is one of wholeness, is one of community. It's one of um, um, looking out for those who are um, less privileged and less powerful. All of those things we saw in Jesus's touching of the leper, his um, calling of women, um, his breaking the laws that, um, that um, um, didn't allow for human wholeness, um, right. his eating and all with the wrong kinds of people, tax collectors and et cetera, et cetera. If we emulate that, I think we emulate God's invasion of the dead and we become apocalyptic ourselves in that, in that regard. Revelatory apocalyptic, not end of time apocalyptic. Right, right. Great distinction. And you talk about that um, preaching that resurrection, not just not just preaching the cross. And here in Easter tide, I mean, there's a no, I mean, any time, but especially here in Easter tide, I mean, a time to preach resurrection and hope. And I love the image, particularly as a sailor, um, of the oceans of hope. I mean, it can be tumultuous, right? That's I mean, right. And dangerous right. and scary, 
but ultimately oceans of hope versus the islands of despair. I mean, everybody thinks they want to go to the, to the, um, to those islands. And there is a lot of despair. There's a lot of fear um, that is being peddled out there for sure. Um, and people are drawn to that, uh, you know, for some reason or another, um, you just see it in all kinds of forms and, and scripture, you know, the, the large scripture account, I'm hearing you talk about gospels as well as, as revelations point, point a whole different way, you know, where you have spent a lot of your time is in this and maybe most folks don't know it uh, or maybe want to reread it is around cultural human hermeneutics where you do look at popular culture things that are happening and your own story your own social location as I understand it and use that lens to read scripture through those lens in a in a particular way that will bring um, I love the the way I think uh, I saw it um, described what is available to the text interpreters is never meaning but meaning potential that meaning potential is assessed is um, accessed culturally that's where you can find that meaning and maybe you can help um, elaborate or describe that for a, a lot of exegetes and preachers and interpreters of scripture out there how, how do they how do they get there yeah, well, um, yeah, well, one of the things I was very interested in starting back with my um, PhD work and moving forward was trying to understand how language is constructed and how language is interpreted. And as you're saying, um, um, uh, there, there are different ways in which we access language. And I was using um, sociolinguistics as a model um, to look at um, the textual components of language, but also the interpersonal components of language. In, in other words, not just the text and the grammar, the ideas that come from the text and the grammar, the markers that are on the page, but it's how we look at those markers through the lens of our own historical circumstance and perspective that help us. And, you know, one example that sociolinguists used was head, for example. I mean, um, depending on your context, it could be head of the class, it could be a head oh. of uh, lettuce, it could be um, the head on your shoulders, or if you're in the Navy, that context it's a different kind of thing right. so i mean you uh, you have one single word with multiple meaning potential you access that potential depending on whether you're in the navy you're a farmer you're in the classroom all these kinds of things well if you broaden that out to not words but sentences not sentences but paragraphs not paragraphs but entire gospel text or gospel letters or a gospel text like the book of revelation you have all this meaning potential how do we then begin to access it one of the things i did in my research in my um, dissertation, and again, back to the PhD days, was to look at the uh, trial scenes in the Gospel of Mark and ask the question, why do scholars across the 20th century think Jesus had done, th done things that made him worthy to be killed? Why, why, um, what did the text in the Gospel of Mark tell us um, that gave us the answer to that question, why was he worthy to be put to death? Um, what I found was that as you looked at the different answers that scholars had across the century, you could um, connect the kind of conclusion they reached with the kind of either academic or social cultural location they brought with them to the study and engagement of that particular text. It wasn't just that the text said one thing and everybody from every context got the same answer. Well, was Jesus killed for redemptive religious reasons? Was he killed for um, revolutionary reasons? Was he killed because he was a social um, person um, with a political program or agenda? I, 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 the determinations were um, 
were connected, at least I, I think I showed, um, through as much the location of the interpreter as it was um, the language of the text. What I've then done is um, suggest that not only is that something that invariably happens, it's a good thing. It's good that uh, we're able to read from our perspectives. And then therefore, what I want to do is to read from a perspective that I didn't see um, 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 typically um, given an example when I was a student in seminary, which was reading the material from right. the perspective of an African-American right. reader, because there weren't a lot of African-American biblical scholars out there <laughs> doing the work from such a perspective. And the persons who were doing them, um, who were teaching me, they were all saying, well, look, if um, you study and use these models and principles of mm -hmm. exegesis, you'll get to the same conclusion everybody else gets to, right. no matter where they come from. <laughs> and we know that's not the case. So right. what we want to do is try to figure out what variables are important when people are reading text. And so when I teach the course Cultural Hermeneutics, I not only give that as a theoretical intro into the course, I then ask students to um, look at the text through other cultural lenses, mm. the lenses that are not their own, and then be willing to engage each other about those texts in the, in the, in the classroom, and then have persons from those other contexts challenge us so that we're not just co-opting, but we're trying to be sensitive, knowing that we can't actually read from someone else's lens, but we can be more sympathetic right. and we can be challenged by persons who come from that particular perspective. So all this brings us to this moment. And, and <laughs> I'm wondering how, I mean, the tools, including uh, what you've just described and others, and, and, and I'm, I, I listened to that sermon again from Next Church and I thought, I'm not sure Brian saw, none of us saw this coming. No, I mean, that was, that was the beginning of March the 2nd or something. Um, you know, how, so how do you interpret scripture now? How does this, how does this pandemic and the current context change how you interpret scripture? Or would you, what are some things you're thinking about? Uh, you may not have it all worked out yet. I mean, I'm guessing sort of, you know, 10 years from now, there's going to be dissertations written about this. <laughs> I, I would think so. I would think so. Well, you know, as you know, the question of theodicy is one that comes to our mm -hmm. mind as right. uh, people of the church and people of um, theological study. Um, um, well, the, problem God, evil, the problem of problem evil. The problem of evil. That's right. Yeah. So um, why doesn't God prevent such things such as this? So that's what I've been grappling with. And I've been hearing, you know, students um, and others ask me the question, well, you know, you, you deal in biblical study. Can you answer that question? Of course, I can't answer the question, but I can say that there were other biblical people um, who are chronicled in the canonical text who were struggling with the same concern. I mean, we know, of course, a typical example is Job. He's asking right. the question. Um, right. but we also know that um, that question is being asked in the New Testament as well. It, it, Last week, I was telling the students, that's the question in the book of Revelation. Well, if God is God, why are God's people being persecuted by the Romans? How does that happen? And how do you witness in the midst of all of that? So while the books, while Job may not answer the question, while John of Patmos may not answer the question, what they do give us are models of faithfulness in the midst of the question. And that's why it's always important for me to tell people, for example, um, this is why I think um, it's important that there is no rapture in the book of Revelation. 
John doesn't want his people to think that the, um, the expectation for them and their witnessing is to be raptured out of the tribulations in life. The expectation for them is to be a model of witnessing in the midst of tribulation. If you can witness that God is in control when it looks like God isn't in control, right. there you are demonstrating a faithfulness that other people will stand up and notice. Now, they may either um, ridicule you, as many of the prophets were ridiculed, as I'm sure John out there on that island of Patmos was ridiculed. However, it will have an impact on, um, on, on crucial elements of a community, and it will change and transform the way persons in that community because of the faithfulness they bring with them out of that circumstance, out of what you're teaching them by your example. It will change the way in which they then ultimately make changes in the world. And we know that the faithfulness of these early Christians has transformed the world. Right. They may not have had the answer, but they had the model to live through the question. And that model of faithfulness living through the question has transformed our world. That's, uh, that seems like that's informative for um, discipleship, for theological education, to live through the questions, to have trust in God, to live through them, to ask those difficult questions, not to shy away from them. Uh, and I think that that's really healthy. And, and also I hear in what you're saying too, maybe some encouragement to preachers. I, I just hear, you know, Easter, it, the Lent and Easter is always uh, tough on church leaders, right? And this year, maybe even more so, they're having to deal with new technology and it just a lot of energy. A lot of them are going live daily, you know, uh, with prayer or um, devotion or what have you. Um, they're having to figure this out and continue to do pastoral care and, you know, take care of themselves too. And, and they're having, I mean, I think this post Easter week, uh, even it's Easter tide, um, that's some encour an encouraging word to say what you do is mattering just showing up even if you don't have to necessarily show up um perfectly but showing up to be a witness to the sovereignty of god to um the one who can take all of our questions the one who was who uh who pushed who pushed job toward uh some new kind of faithfulness also i mean and uh i think that is that is really helpful um yeah, I mean, uh, very helpful. I'm gonna see if I got any more questions here coming. Um, I, there was one thing I wanted to to note. I'm not sure if it makes any difference. I think it it speaks to maybe why you're a good exegete and a good preacher is uh, in reading and prepare for this. Uh, I learned that you have a little known talent uh, from back when you were a child. Apparently, uh, you, you're you're. Uh, that that you um, could know if a dish at the dinner table was going to be any good. Is this true? Yeah, that's right. Before you ate it. That's right. Before I ate it. That's right. And I you tell can me, see. And that's my wife. I still have that capability. <laughs> and and um, and and the and the other, you know, and I think that was described in talking about um, looking at the covers of movies or DVD covers that you could tell if it was going to be a good movie before, right, right, right. before, it, <laughs> before it happened. Um, I, I hope, uh, I hope your talents uh, as an exegete and as, as a guide today point us toward, you know, something good here. It sounds like there, I see a smile on your face and some hope and, uh, and, and some joy in you, even though it's a difficult time and you're, I mean, you just described with, you know, changing the way commencement looks like and how you're doing class and all those things. But you have a bigger hope 
um, than just than just now. So you you must see something. <laughs> well, I don't. I mean, I see something, but I feel something. And okay. you know, um, I heard um, a preacher um, a long time ago. Not well, I was still at Princeton at the time, and um, and uh, he preached on the Book of Revelation, and he preached um, that he had he was in New York City after nine eleven. And he talked about um, the the uh, pathos of uh, people in uh, New York as they were coming up to the part of the city where his church was. And he said that um, he was asked um, uh, some of the weeks after 9-11 why he still had a sense of hopefulness. Mm. And he said, well, you know why? Because I've read to the end of the book and wow. I know what happens. The end of the book is all about hope. And therefore, I believe I can work through the difficulties that I know come as a part of life because I know at the end of the book, there is this great hope that I am promised. Mm. And, you know, I, I don't always have that at the surface, you know, um, so I might not always be, um, uh, um, uh, I don't channeling that so people can see it. But in my best moments, I think I feel that. I feel that there is this um, trust um, that has been bred in me from my long years in the church with my parents and my early church upbringing, the studies that I've done, that I know the end of the book. Right. And I know while there's difficulty in the middle, there's hope there at the end. And that hope is a promise that can break through at any moment in the present, just as God broke through with Jesus mm -hmm. in the present. Thanks be to God. <laughs> and hallelujah, amen. I think that's uh, a great place uh, for us to close. I'm, I'm just, just can't tell you how grateful I am, Brian, uh, for your continuing witness. Um, I'm sure that uh, I want to get the name Martha James, whoever she was, <laughs> That's right. and, as well as, as Doris and Edward Blunt and, uh, and Jeffrey and Richard, your brothers, and Joshua and Kayla your children and Sharon and all those who are part of Union Presbyterian Seminary and that community um, and beyond in the Peace USA, we give thanks uh, for the child of God you are, for the ways that you are coming alive, as Howard Thurman used to say, in terms of call and continue to come alive the way you have brightened the story in the church and the world uh, with your ministry and um, and and apparently a number of folks day to day who have joined us. And so uh, thank you so much and blessings to you and, and all. Um, could you give us a closing prayer, maybe, Brian, or benediction to the people who are with us? You, you kind of already did, but <laughs> I'll let you I'll let you put an amen on it. Well, the benedictory that I, um, um, I thought you might ask me scripture that was important for me during this time. I was sharing with someone yesterday. There are two places. One, um, John eleven forty, where um, after Lazarus's death and uh, you know his sisters asked Jesus and Jesus says, did I not tell you if you would believe you'll see the glory of God? In other words, the end of the book can invade the present moment. And then the other one is one that... Um, that uh, uh, my pastor Alec Evans um, uh, shared a few years ago. I keep with me. I wrote it down. Second Chronicles twenty twelve, where the people are um, caught up in a in a hopeless situation, and their their cry out was, "For we are powerless against this great multitude that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Our eyes are on God now. Amen. We don't know what to do." but we have trust and hope that God working through the many, you know, medical people, the scientists and others right. that um, there will be an intervention 
Um, it'll be an intervention that'll come through the, the people who work with the skills they've been given, the talents they've been blessed with. Um, but um, that hope is out there and it will break through. Thanks be to God. And um, it, uh, if you stay on, I'd love just to, to, to have some closing words with you, but thanks again for joining us today and, um, and blessings on you. Thank you.